let's look at Psalm 9 and talk about justice. What is it? Well, one thing we'll see in Psalm 9 is that David gives God high praise for it. So it's something very, very praiseworthy. That's something I want to impress on you. I want to impress on you uh, to understand justice biblically, and it's awful and terrifying, and then learn to make that a part of that which you give God great thanksgiving and praise for. Um, and so let, let me read the text, pray from Psalm 119, and then just talk a bit about the structure of Psalm 9 before jumping into justice. To the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. Again, we have no idea what Muth Laban means, some kind of musical term, but we don't know. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds, wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name almost high. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their city you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He, have, he has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell the, among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Father, your testimonies are eternal. You have founded them forever. They are true. And in them, you are near to us. Father, many in this world though, are far from your law. And so we ask that according to your justice, you would deal with them. God, teach us even now to meditate on your promises, to hope in your words, to observe your testimonies and to keep them. And so with our whole heart, we cry to you and ask that you would answer us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 9 uh, has basically two parts. You can see in verse 13, there's a bit of a turn. He begins to request something of God. And so in the verse 12 verses, he is celebrating God's justice. He's recounting the 
times when God's justice and judgment has come and he's praising God for him. And then having remembered that in the first 12 verses, he turns in verse 13 then and begins to pray for more of the same. So overall, this psalm then wants to do two things for you. It wants to teach you to praise God for his justice, provided you understand it biblically. It wants to teach you to sing a song rejoicing with your whole heart in the justice of God. And then second, it wants to reassure and comfort God's people who are awaiting his justice. Now that's, the, that's the main effect of the second half of it. You see in verse, nine, uh, verse 18 that the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. There is a sense of desire for God's justice to come and we're taught to take comfort in it. Vengeance is mine, I repay, says the Lord. We're taught to comfort in that, take comfort in it. Let's begin, though, with uh, in verse 1, what Pastor Jeff talked about in the children's sermon, the idea of wholehearted um, thankfulness to God. Wholehearted thankfulness to God. Uh, Pastor Jeff got at it that we can pour out our whole being into something. The idea of wholeheartedness here means not divided. It's um, the incongruity of somebody cheering for the Packers and the Cowboys or something. It's somebody who's a fan of the Hodags and the Thunderbirds somehow. Right? It, there's, an, there's an incongruity of giving your heart to God and to something else that you give your allegiance to as if it's God also. But here David is giving wholehearted thankfulness, all-in thankfulness. Every part of his being is given in praise of God. Every part of him. Every part of him. You might remember that in Ephesians 5, when men are called to love their wives as Christ is of the church, and wives are called to submit to their husband as to Christ, and Paul says at the end of that that this really isn't about marriage. It's, it's mainly about the mystery of Christ's love for his bride, the church, that he gave himself. He gave all that he is on the cross in our place for our sins. And so then we are to give ourselves likewise to him. We are the bride. We are to submit and give him utter and full allegiance. That's what David is here portraying. So David is somewhat of a fanatic in his praise of God. He's unrestrained. He's immoderate. He is like the old DC talk. Remember DC talk? Anybody remember DC talk? He's a Jesus freak. You should be embarrassed to remember DC Talk. I am sometimes. Right? No, they were fun. They were fun, yeah. Uh, but David's immoderate. He, I think you would be embarrassed if he was your worship leader. Right? You, you might not like it. He's not holding back. He's not constrained. He's not moderate. He's zealous. And as Pastor Jeff alluded to, you... You can have that kind of immoderate affection and focus and investment in many things in this world. But if you are that for Christ, there's something wrong with you. 
Sometimes even parents want to restrain the immoderate devotion of children. I had one of my daughters here this morning, and she was singing in the hallways, and you could hear it echoing around. And part of me was like, well, she better stop. She might. I thought, what a, no, don't do that. Encourage it. Praise it. We sing a song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, love so divine. What does it demand of you? Everything. We are to love God with some of our heart and some of our soul and some of our mind, right? No, love God with all. All. So are you, do you? Now, don't forget, David is a human. He's not some super spiritual cyborg. You know, he, he's just a guy. He's just like us. He's settling here in this one word, whole heart, what you and I were made to give to God. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I said, this is the best gift that God can give you is for you to be all invested in him. There's nothing so pleasing for your soul. There's nothing so satisfying for your being than to be this kind of invested in God. Everything else that you're seeking after is found in this. Just this. Now, by giving wholehearted devotion to God, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy things of earth. We do. We enjoy getting out in the woods with a chainsaw and cutting down trees. That's a good gift of God to give God thanks for. Wholehearted devotion does not mean not doing those things. It doesn't mean not enjoying a baseball game to God's glory. It doesn't mean not enjoying food and drink. It doesn't mean not enjoying your wife or your husband. Sometimes we want to separate the spiritual from the physical as if we're kind of these dualistic, Gnostic Christians that we're only spiritual, 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 and anything earthly is to be denied. That's not what he's talking about here. Wholehearted praise of God is enjoying everything that God has done and made to his glory. It means to enjoy it more. It means to enjoy the gardening more for God's sake, to Lose yourself in the wonder of a flower that you've planted and is growing. Means to enjoy getting on a tube, being pulled behind a boat at rapid speeds, skipping along like <laughs> what the Antonic boys did last Sunday at the park. It's seeing these good gifts of God and, and, and just having these moments of, thank you, Lord. So this is going on. It's being a human. Notice too that David begins his psalm with thanks. This is a, a song, a prayer. So let's not forget to, to start our days, to start our prayers, to start our meals with thanks. What a great place to begin, isn't it? We might be more thankful. So if you want to practically put this into your life, just start everything with thanks. How about that? 
wholeheartedly, all in, invested. Now David here is giving this wholehearted thanks, recounting all of God's wondrous deeds for something in particular, and that thing in particular is God's justice. I think you might find that strange, especially when you think carefully about what he means by God's justice in the rest of this psalm, and then I want to take you to a few other psalms. If you have your Bibles out, we're going to be just looking at five or six other psalms that speak, that ask God for more justice. But just let's, let's just walk through Psalm 9 and recount with David what he is giving, what David is giving wholehearted thanks to God for. He's giving thanks in verse 3, wholehearted thanks that God turned back the enemies, that they've stumbled and have perished before your presence. Stumbling there, if you're a moviegoer, if you've watched, let's say, Saving Private Ryan, and there at the end, um, Tom Hanks, I can't remember his, his, what's his name in the movie? Anybody remember? Captain something. None of you remember? Huh. Not, not Captain Underpants, David. That ain't it. Well, at the end of it, he takes a round in the chest and he stumbles to his knees before collapsing. That's the kind of stumbling David is giving thanks for, that God is doing that to the enemies. He gives thanks for God's righteous judgment in verse 4. That God is giving judgment, David is giving thanks for giving thanks in verse 5 for him rebuking the nations, making the wicked, wicked perish, even blotting out their name forever and ever. He's giving thanks for God bringing the enemy to everlasting ruins in verse 6, that he's rooting out the cities. There's some gardening language for you, right? You don't just pull off the tops of the weeds. You've got to get them down in the roots. Giving thanks in verse 12 that God is a blood avenger. Some of you enjoyed N.D. Wilson's trilogy, The Ashtown Burials. What do you call it? Now it's four parts, a quadrilogy. I don't know what you call that. And one of the main characters is the blood avenger of this society. He hunts down and kills those who do harm to members of his society. That's what he's giving thanks to God for, that God is a blood avenger. He hunts down and destroys those who harm his people. Thanks God that the nations are in a pit. Verse 15, that they've been caught in a net of their own making. Verse 16, he's thanking God that God has executed judgment, snared the wicked, Verse 17, he's thanking God that God has returned the wicked to Sheol. In the King James, it says he, that God has returned the wicked to hell. That'll probably be a bit more striking than Sheol to you. That's what David is giving wholehearted thanks to God for. That's sobering. He's thanking God that he has put the nations in fear. Aren't the nations in fear right now? Isn't every nation quaking right now? We should be thanking God for that. It's just judgments against the rebellion. We should be thanking God for COVID. 
causing the nations to quake and tremble. That's what David is thanking God for. Now look at verse 16. All of these judgments, all of this justice, it says the Lord has made himself known. Take a step back from that. What, what is all of this creation for? What's the entire purpose of God creating, of God speaking into existence all things, including man? What's it for? To make him known. That's it. That's the singular purpose of the sovereign, eternal God in doing everything, including creating. It's all about him. It's all about making himself known. That's why he made us in his image. That when we see other human beings, we're seeing something of an image bearer of God so that we might be seeing something of God to make him known. Of course, that's why he sent his son to redeem us back to himself so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. Everything is for the sake of making God known. And so in verse 16 then, right in the middle of Psalm 9, we are at the foundational reality of everything. How, so Psalm 9 then is adding, helping you to see another facet of God working in the world that he is making himself known to you. God is making himself known to you in his judgments. He wants you to know more fully who he is Not just in the sweet things, but in the bitter things. Not just in the things that we find more delightful, but the things that we might find more appalling in his judgments. God has made himself known in executing judgment. He has made himself known in snaring the wicked in their own snares. Just think about that a second. I thought about that line for a bit. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands in verse 16. So here's something of the wondrous sovereignty of God. Who's making the snares? The wicked. And yet who is sovereignly working over all of it to ensnare them? God. See how great God is? He doesn't even really have to make the snares. He ordains the wicked making the snares that he then intends that to catch them in himself. This is how great God is. And, 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 and he's doing that to make him known. To make known his wisdom. His sovereignty. In all of the reaping what we sow, God is making himself known. So that we, like David, being God's beloved people might enjoy and know God more. So we come face to face with this reality that is difficult, that God's justice, his executing of judgment, which is often shocking to our sensibilities, is given to you for the foremost gift of you knowing him more. That's what it's for. So, why the hurricane? Why? 
parents, what do you tell your kids if they ask? Why does God do that? Why does God bring 150 mile an hour winds and 20 foot waves that destroy life? Why? Well, a biblical answer is he's, he's making himself known, son. He's making himself known, sweetie. He's making his power and justice and judgment known that we might fear and be in awe of him. We don't only say God allowed it. We, we say God's doing it. He's unleashing a hurricane so the nations might tremble. So that we might know that we're but men and not God. And we might humble ourselves before him. He's making himself known. So Psalm 9 then sometimes has a label of an imprecatory psalm. You heard that phrase before, in imprecatory? Imprecatory means to curse someone. It means to prayerfully ask God to execute judgment upon them for their wickedness. So David's praying, Arise, O Lord! These judgments that we remember, visit them again on your enemies. There are several psalms like this. We, we tasted it just a bit in Psalm 5, verse 10, if you turn back there. Psalm 5, verse 10 was like just the, the first taste of these imprecatory psalms that are in the psalms in, in even greater degrees. 5, 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their tr- transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. There, that's an... That's David asking for God's judgment, for cursing them. Make them bear their guilt, O God. If you fast forward ahead to Psalm 58. Verses 6 through 8. So what we're doing here is we're we're being discipled. Our minds and our hearts hopefully are being expanded to include more of that which we can praise God for him, praise praise God for and know him more in. Here's Psalm 58. Break the teeth in their mouths. You ever see somebody get caught in the mouth with maybe a bat? When I was, I don't remember what grade it was, I got hit in the head of the bat during... um, Recess, my best friend Steve Bruxford was playing baseball and we were playing tag and I ran by right as he was swinging and he caught me right in the face. Didn't hit my teeth, thank God. This is what David is praying to happen to somebody else. Break their teeth. Tear out their fangs. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Or Psalm 69. Verses 22 to 25. 
let their own table before them become a snare. Right? Sitting down to table is one of the most relaxing, peaceful parts of our existence. It's supposed to be. After a day's hard work, to gather on the table is to take a breath. It's to rest. It's to join with those that you love most and be nourished. And David is praying that that place would be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. A justice that David is teaching the saints to pray and to sing. Or Psalm 109. We've got two more. Psalm 109. This one has a lot of this kind of language, verse 6 to 15. Here David prays, Appointed wicked, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Verse 8, may his days be few. Verse 9, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Verse 10, may his children wander about and beg. You're getting it, right? Verse 15, let them, let their sin be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. When's the last time you prayed that? Or Psalm 137, 9, which is the most awful of all curses. I don't know if you have the stomach for this one. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Why is David praying those things? Or why are the psalmists singing those things? And why are we being taught to do the same? Because God is just. And he hates evil. And he hates those who harm his people. So that we might know him more. Unless you think that this is just the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from these songs that I've just read in the New Testament. Or if you would, turn to Romans 9.17. Maybe one of the hardest hitting chapters in all the Bible. Where David is talking about God's sovereignty over who he saves and whom he doesn't save. And one of the, one of the objections to this is, why do you blame us, God? Why? If, it, if in verse 16 it depends not in human will or exer- exertion, but on God who is mercy, then why do you blame us? What about Pharaoh, verse 17? For this very purpose I raised him up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
God's justice executed against Pharaoh was to proclaim his name in all the earth, to make him known. God uses the language of creation. The reason I created Pharaoh, the reason I put Pharaoh on the earth, was for the sole purpose of exalting my justice on all the earth. Those of you who have been doing the Bible reading program, we just finished the book of Revelation. There's an entire book devoted to severe justice and judgments on God on the earth and the saints calling out for more. How long, O Lord? Come, Lord Jesus, come. The very last thing in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Why is he crying that out? What will Jesus do when he comes? Of course, for us, those who have faith, it's to rescue us. It's to bring heaven to earth. It's to put away all sorrow and sadness and death and grief. But you know when you cry, come Lord Jesus, come, what happens to those who don't know him? Justice. He came the first time to save and not to come. He comes the second time to damn trample his enemies down. He comes with a sword out of his mouth to execute justice. Come, O Lord, come. It's not a nice prayer. It's imprecatory. He wants justice. What is justice? What can we learn from Psalm 9 about justice? Well, in verses 4 and 8, it's righteous. At the end of the book of Romans, we're taught to leave room for the wrath of God, to not avenge ourselves. Because God will do it. Because God's good at it. We're not very good at it. Our anger is like manna. It doesn't keep well. We're not good at being angry. Our anger is often petty and selfish and unjust. God's isn't. In verse 7, we see that God's justice is over all, but the Lord insists, or but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. God is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's established a, a, a seat, a ruling seat over all the earth for the sake of justice. He's sovereign over all. His justice then is against the wicked. It's not capricious or arbitrary, like must justice on the earth. The reason so many of us are so dismayed in our time is because the justice is so unjust. It's arbitrary. It's political. It's 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 not justice actually. But God's justice is always just. It's always righteous. There is a standard of justice and it's God himself and his law. Every execution of God's justice is perfect. It's righteous. It's right. And then on the opposite side, it's good for the just. It's good for his people. In verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
So God's justice on the enemies is good for his people. We look forward to a day when all the wicked have been purged from the earth and there's no more injustice. There's no more lying. No more calls like I got yesterday from somebody saying that the government has removed my social security number and asking if I would just call them back and be no more of that. There'll be no more sexual abuse from fathers against their daughters or uncles against their nieces or nephews. It'll be done. And so it's a, something we're to glory in. It's something we're to praise God for. And the timing of his justice is up to God in verses 18 and 19. So God's justice judgments are righteous. He's sovereign over all, established his throne to judge. It's always against the wicked. It's not arbitrary or capricious. He has a standard. It's for our good. And the timing is up to him. Verses 18 and 19, the needy feel like they're forgotten. The hope of the poor is diminishing because sometimes God delays his judgment. The timing's up to him. But we are meant to wait for it and to praise him for it, to find joy and comfort in it. It is a help. That's the entire purpose of this psalm, to praise him for it as we await it. To thank him for it as we cry out to him for more of it. I think this gospel is very timely in our world. Even those who are not yet believers who see the injustices going on around as businesses burn or people trying to protect their homes are the ones arrested and vilified. Even decent, common-sense people in the world who are not Christian, have no love for Christ, can find this gospel appealing. And we ought to preach it and not ever be ashamed of God's justice. Because the very foundation of our salvation is this justice. How are you included in God's covenant family? I think sometimes we think that it's like God just kind of looked at us and said, I love you, you come on in. Like he just kind of swept our wickedness and evil and our twisted human nature under the rug and just said, hey, I love you. Come on in. God loves you. He's got a good plan for your life. You just come on in. God's like this big cuddly teddy bear in the sky who's just nice to some people sometimes. We don't know why, but golly, he loves me so much. You know, right, that the only reason that you're his is because God executed judgment, severe judgment on his son on the cross for your sin. He avenged himself on your sin on his son. He poured out his just judgment. He cut his son off from the land of the living and so you can be alive in him. In Isaiah 53, 
we read that God smited him. That by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You're saved because the Son of God suffered the righteous judgment of God that we just read in all these imprecatory psalms that we see in verse 9. God's Son was tortured. He was hung shamefully and painfully on the cross in your place for your sin, suffering under the righteous judgment of God. The very foundation of your salvation is the justice of God. You aren't welcomed into the family of God just because God is so nice. What he did to Jesus wasn't nice. It was just. It was awful. But we just don't have the stomach for this kind of thing anymore. That's why we take the gospel so lightly. That's why we live our lives so lightly. Because we sing about grace, 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 but we don't really understand what the grace is. The grace is just. It's terrible. It's awful. It, it would have shocked you. We don't have a stomach for it anymore. We don't see death in our day anymore. We don't even stay with our loved ones as they're dying. We give them to somebody else to go through that horror. Because we don't want to see it. We don't want to be a part of it. We just want to see it afterwards in a casket where they're all done up looking like they're still alive. Or whatever. We, don't want to, we don't want to see that. We want to hide it. We want to pack it down. We don't, want to, we don't want to admit God's justice. We want to deny it. We don't want to see it. Yet if you're a Christian, you have to see it. You can't be a Christian without acknowledging it because it's there on the cross. The Psalm 9 awful judgment of God there poured out on his son for us so that we might be his children. And it pleased the Lord to do this for our sake. And we're taught to take comfort and it's going to come on all those who oppress and harm and abuse and especially against God's people. And so let's uh, have the faith for this because this is how God is making himself known to us. And we can rejoice in him and exalt in him and enjoy him forever, even in his justice. Let's pray. Father, teach us to give thanks to you with our whole heart, to recount all of your wondrous deeds, to be glad and exult in you and sing praise to your name because you turn your enemies back. They stumble and perish before your presence. So arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Give us faith to Give ourselves to these things. Give us faith to worship you, the God who is this. In Christ's holy name, amen.